I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. When picking a vacation destination, some people make their choice based on the white sand beaches. Others for the shopping or the good food. Others pick their vacation spots because they're on a list. Specifically, the list of UNESCO World Heritage Sites. In order to learn from the devastation and destruction of the two world wars, to promote understanding between peoples and to secure peace, UNESCO was founded in 1945 as the Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization of the UN. The UNESCO list of World Heritage Sites includes places like Stonehenge, Machu Picchu, the Taj Mahal, the Galapagos Islands. Many were already huge tourist attractions long before being added to the list. Isla Isabella, and we are off today to find penguins. Is that a penguin? No. Oh, no but being put on the UNESCO list is special. It comes with global recognition, international pressure to preserve the site for future generations and sometimes even funding to help with that conservation. Who knows, maybe this story, I wouldn't have heard about the park if it wasn't a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Interesting, yeah. This is Yardane Amron. He's a freelance journalist who traveled to the Tirtan Valley in India, just outside the borders of the Great Himalayan National Park. This place is a gorgeous patchwork of forests, glaciers, mountains, and wildlife. And coincidentally, it was listed as a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 2014. I heard about from a lot of these um, guest house owners, um, they had people coming through who were just checking off boxes of going to all of the UNESCO sites around the world. That was their that was their oh, wow. travel. It's like motive. how they're organizing yeah. their travel. Yeah, which was an interesting sort of thing to hear. Yeah. But the UNESCO World Heritage Program has its critics. Of the more than 1,100 sites around the world on the list, nearly half are in Europe and North America. That seems to imply that some people's heritage is worth more to the world than others. And what about the costs of conservation? 
not the financial costs, but the tangible costs, how might the list change the very place that's been listed? There are upsides to the amount of money that that can bring in. But at the same time, with that money comes a lot of people, a lot of feet, um, a lot of trash, a lot of conflict. Since being listed as a World Heritage Site, tourism in and around the Great Himalayan National Park is on the rise. It's actually a crucial part of the plan to save this area for future generations. But what if the thing that's supposed to save this special place, the Tirton Valley, is also one of its biggest threats? This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Justine Paradise. In our last episode, journalist Yardane Amron told us the story of how the Great Himalayan National Park was first created. Today, Yardane is looking at the ecotourism industry that's been growing since the Great Himalayan National Park was listed as a UNESCO site in 2014. How much is the Tirton Valley changing? They started talking badly about me. Who profits from tourism? Tourism based on exploring wilderness. I don't go by the inside and the outside nonsense. You have a responsibility towards the people you employ. And how eco-friendly is ecotourism? Ecotourism, according to me, would be just the basics. To get to Raju's guest house, you have to cross the Tiratan River in a cable basket and climb up the opposite bank into a place that looks like a fairy tale. Vines climb the dark wood facade. There are flowers, fruit trees, and a fire pit. When we visit, kittens are playing around an old cherry tree. Some guests are fishing for trout in the Tiratan, and dogs are barking up the steep south face. I learned later, probably because of the leopards that come over the ridge at night sometimes and stalk them. Raju of Raju's Guesthouse has been running the place since 1991. He's in his late 60s, toothpick thin, and the day I interviewed him, he was wearing a baseball cap. When I was a kid, there was no electricity till 1973. And uh, there was very few business, you know, no tourism at all. Raju's pretty soft-spoken, at least when my microphone was out. But don't let that fool you. Some years back, he and his father, who was a local politician, fought against outsider hydro developers who were trying to dam up the Tiratan River. And amazingly, the locals won. It was not really many group. I was the only one in the beginning, you know. No one from the village came together to help you? That time they were all against me. They thought, you know, they would have some employment by selling momos or, you know, or this pan kenny or... Raju is an example of a local villager who's done well catering to regional tourists. But the people I met staying at his homestay had complex feelings about the growing tourism industry here. 
Because while the park remains relatively low impact, it's the surrounding areas that are growing, changing, and not always for the better. One night at Raju's, we were crowded around the wood stove in the dining room. Karan Bharti, Raju's son, said that the summer right around the World Heritage designation, a music festival had shown up in the Tirthan Valley. Foreigners and urban Indians flocked to the valley, as did DJs from some 17 countries across four continents. It was a rave party. I can call it a rave party or what, like, it, called, it was called Shiba Squared Festival or something, loud music and all. Yeah, yeah, something like that. They was they were selling liquor on the roadside. There was no check. They were they were like uh, doing theft of electricity direct direct from the poles. They were stealing electricity right from the telephone pole. There were laser lights, fire jugglers, a VIP lounge with butlers, and lots and lots of body paint. For those three days of the Shiva Square Festival, the rush of the free flowing Tirtan was drowned out by the pulse of 125 BPM trance music. The people I talked to at Raju's weren't anti-EDM per se, but stealing electricity is probably the polar opposite of empowering local communities. One of the people sitting around the wood stove, a guy named Nishant, told me the rave parties are part of a pattern for players looking to build a tourist economy in India. If, if, if I'm going from a business point of view, I'll start with rave parties. Rave parties started in Old Manali. That's how Old Manali got introduced to the tourism circuit. Rave parties started in Kasol, Tosh. That's how Kasol and Tosh became famous. So if you're starting with rave party, you're doing kind of a soft opening for that location. I ask him, you're saying it's strategic? It is strategic. It is strategic for any place. But that how that is how it begins. So that's what I saw at Raju's guest house. Some longtime locals who maintain a healthy skepticism of ecotourism, even as they're taking part in the industry. But what happens if I go down the road to another guest house? One run by people who didn't grow up under the shadow of the Himalayas. There's a little village just downstream from Raju's named Deori. Step inside and you'll see a dozen or so slate roof homes wedged inside a deep river valley. A mother tree and a glistening stream called the Kalwari. It's idyllic. But up the road is a swanky stone property that looks and sounds just a little out of place. It's a guest house. One with the very western sounding name. Gone Fishing Cottages. Gone Fishing has come up just in the past 3-4 years. It's got 7 suites, satellite TV, locally organic source food. Rooms start at about $75 a night. A substantial amount for the Indian Himalayas. One afternoon, I went to talk to the owners. Okay, I'm Dimple Kamra, wife of Upi Kamra. You don't need to say that. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just being funny. Yeah? Oh, no, no, no. I am the girl Friday for this man. Uh, my role is that. <laughs> They're not foreigners, but to the locals who grew up here, they might as well be. They're city folk from Chandigarh, the capital city of the neighboring state of Punjab. They first visited the Tirthan Valley 25 years ago. 
There was nothing here except for Raju. We stayed with Raju. We stayed we with stayed Raju. With also. Everyone <laughs> he starts out staying with Raju. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. There was nothing. He's a role model. Even today, he's a role model for us. This is Upi, Dimple's husband, and the other half of Gone Fishing Cottages. Are there any memories you have from that first trip? Oh yes, we loved it. There was nothing. Oh. It was so beautiful and quiet. Mm. In fact, even uh, this all this construction, I think, has come up in the last. Uh, what, seven years maybe? The last seven years, that is right around the park's UNESCO World Heritage designation. As we talk about their memories and stories of the valley, we're sitting on the patio while their local staff served us coffee and lunch, which I couldn't help but feel was a class divide that to me was symbolic of the conflict, of what a lot of people I spoke to framed as between insiders and outsiders. Sure, some villagers, insiders, get jobs through tourism, but it's the wealthy outsiders, like the Kamras, who are making the real money. But when I brought it up, Dimple rejected the framing. I don't go by the inside and the outside nonsense. You have a responsibility towards the people you employ. I fund the uh, kids' education. I make sure that the medicals are paid for. I, it's not that I'm an outsider or an insider or a... Whatever, I, I don't care. It is my moral duty. They're working for me. The way Dimple talks about locals and her role in the local economy reminds me a lot of the way government planners did when they were first designing the park. That she and her husband, in operating this place, are helping locals who don't yet know how or have the means to help themselves. They, these people weren't working before. Some of them were never have never worked. So we are training them to do that. And I think that's what you need to do. You need to create jobs. You need to create employment for them. Logically, you have nothing, and then you have something, and then you're complaining that the something is not enough. So it doesn't make sense to me. Essentially, I hear Dimple saying, ecotourism creates jobs. But as far as how locals or insiders feel about employment in a service economy, it's not so simple. Remember Narottam Singh? He was the veteran forest guard from last week's episode. When the GHNP was created, he was caught in the conflict between government-conceived eco-development and local protests. But now he's caught in a new conflict, catalyzed again by the very park he's employed to protect. He owns some land in the Tirtan Valley, and since the park's UNESCO designation, property prices have skyrocketed. So Narotam, like many locals, reasonably decided to lease his land to an outsider who had the capital and knowledge to build a guest house. It seemed like a great idea, a win-win for everyone. But now, Narotam is not excited by the idea of his own children working at such a place. But my son and my son's son, they, if they don't study, what they're going to be doing is all of these outsiders who have taken lands on lease for 30-30 years, they are probably going to be cleaning utensils and sweeping in the uh, guest houses of these people. And that's the dark future. For some, that's not a dark future. It's the present. When I stayed at Raju's guest house, the one from the first half of this episode, his son told me many young men here are so ashamed to work as servants on their own land that they're fleeing the valley altogether. It's a pattern that's taken place in other countries too. 
Rosaline Duffy is a professor at the University of Sheffield who studies the global politics of biodiversity conservation. That's the kind of the common pattern where the people who are the, almost like the objects of the ecotourism experience, the people whose villages you go into or whose lands that you go into, are the people that you meet, um, are nearly always at the bottom of the chain in terms of getting any of the revenue. At the bottom of the chain, all the while their homes and landscapes increase in desirability, just as an exotic backdrop for Instagram influencers. I love the fact that all these houses are so old and there's not a single modern structure. In the last episode of my Offbeat Himachal series, I trekked to the Great Himalayan National Park, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. With examples all over YouTube and travel blogs and outsider guest houses dominating the internet marketing game, it's no surprise that younger locals aren't satisfied with this arrangement. You know, there's been an assumption in the past that if you develop an ecotourism resort, then people in rural areas will be only too delighted to act as tour guides, maids, cleaners, uh, waiters, without ever asking them, is that what you actually wanted out of your life? And perhaps they wanted to be a doctor or a vet or a nurse or a teacher. Um, And that's the kind of development that needed to be supported, I think. But the Indian government is doubling down on the hospitality industry. Over the past five years, the Asian Development Bank has loaned the Himachal Pradesh government $83 million to continue developing tourism across the state. Along with constructing a bunch of parking lots and ropeways, a key component of the project is prescribed job training, gendered programs that emphasize different roles for men and women in hospitality and food. Like Upi of Gone Fishing Cottages said, the tourism industry is creating more jobs for locals. What it doesn't seem to be doing is actually improving the vast majority of locals' lives. Outside In will be right back after a break. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. (laughs) Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome back. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Justine Paradise. Today, reporter Yardane Amron has been taking us on a trip through the region surrounding the Great Himalayan National Park in northern India. Before the break, he was exploring this idea that tourism has a way of dividing people there into two categories. 
insiders, or locals that grew up in the area, and outsiders, people who come from other parts of India or other parts of the world, to visit the park or to capitalize on the opportunity it presents. This is a categorization that not everyone agrees with. Here's Yardane. One thing I came to realize reporting in the Indian Himalayas is that Dimple was right about the insiders and outsiders thing. At least kind of. It is reductive framing. Insiders good, outsiders bad. And it doesn't tell the whole story. The villagers in the ecozone aren't a monolith. And neither are the people who've discovered the valley in the past 20 years. But it's also reductive to do away with the distinction altogether. Outsiders do, by and large, have more power than insiders. There's one story in particular that, to me, really embodies just how complicated and contradictory it is to hold both these ideas in your mind. And the story is a particular example of an ecotourism outfit. Himalayan ecotourism. It was founded by this guy. Okay, um, my name is Stefan Marshall. He's originally from Belgium, but he's what's called an overseas citizen of India. Uh, I, I'm like an Indian, except that I cannot vote and uh, I cannot apply for a government job. That's all. Uh, for the rest, I'm like, I'm equal to an Indian. Vibanai stayed with Stefan and his family at his homestay for a couple days. The house is high up on a ridge in a little village that looks down on the Tirthan River. His wife Hema is Himachali, and together they manage the business and the kids' full-time schooling. But here's the thing. Stefan may be the founder of Himalayan ecotourism, but it's designed as a cooperative and owned by more than 60 locals. Guides, porters, and cooks who organize treks into the park. He got the idea around 2011 after hiking around the ecozone trying to understand the politics of the Tirtan Valley. Understanding what is happening, uh, how, what the people think about the national park, what the people think about uh, the park administration. This is another long story, but essentially, at the time ecotourism inside the park was offered by only one organization, with a name that sounds noble, if stuffy. It was called Biodiversity Tourism Community Advancement. It's an NGO, but also had offices inside the park administration itself. And it had a terrible reputation. Locals I talked to had little love for it. Like that forest guard, Narottam Singh, called them incompetent. So when Stefan began talking to locals about starting a cooperative ecotourism company that gave them ownership over their own work, a lot of people were really into it. Just not everybody. Well, they started talking badly about me, uh, using any kind of information to uh, throw mud on my face, mudslinging. Let's go back to this insider-outsider framing. Here's Stefan, an outsider, starting this new company. Naturally, some of the opposition came from the park management, arguably outsiders. But it also came from some powerful locals, insiders, who had a stake in the NGO or saw Stefan's cooperative as a threat to their own profits from the tourism industry. And uh, spreading rumor, uh, telling that, yeah, uh, Stefan is an outsider. He has nothing to do here. Stefan has come to make money only, and so on. But Stefan's collective offered a more equitable relationship for local guides, also insiders. And so his collective started peeling away some of BTCA's employees. 
It's now been over seven years since Stefan started the company, and despite this conflict, he and the rest of the owners of Himalayan ecotourism have managed to build a sizable presence in the Tirtan Valley. They even won a national award for their work, the 2019 Indian Responsible Tourism Award. This year, the judges decided on Himalayan ecotourism. The reason for that is an excellent example of using tourism to make better lives for people, but also to make a real contribution to conservation. Again, this might sound like a success story, a more cooperative, equitable relationship rooted in local knowledge of the place, something that feels different than a straight-up service job. And to an extent, it is. But the model still exists within a much larger competitive marketplace. Like other tour operators, it still depends on flying in tourists seeking authentic eco-tourist experiences. Which raises the question, is it possible to build a profitable tourism industry that actually uplifts local community and still call it conservation? The answer depends on who you ask. I will give you my take on ecotourism. Ecotourism, according to me, would be just the basics. That's Upendra, or Upi again, Dimple's husband, and the owner of Gone Fishing Cottages in Deori. You're using minimal energy. You would be using no plastic. You would not uh, be storing meat, frozen foods. So things like that. To Upi, practicing true ecotourism requires operators to really think carefully about what they're doing. After all, the hospitality industry is energy intensive. Constant washing of sheets and bedding, single-serving plastics and toiletries. It adds up. Whether or not consumers really want to have this kind of experience is an open question. But even so, Upi's wife and business partner, Dimple, even says they're trying to go zero waste. So we are also changing all our toiletries, getting all eco-friendly stuff. We are not, we're trying to not use plastic at all. So gradually, I think it'll take us about five, six months, but we would be able to confidently say, yes, we are doing ecotourism. That is, of course, part of the whole brand appeal of a quote-unquote pristine place like this, perched over a stream and tucked under the shadow of the Himalayas. In the About page from Gone Fishing's website, they say, quote, we welcome you to our world, a world of living in tune with nature, end quote. But the focus on individual responsibility and the environmental impact of guest houses within the Tirtan Valley itself isn't the whole picture. A recent study out of the Nature Climate Change Journal found that tourism's global carbon footprint accounts for about 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions, four times the last estimate. By 2050, aviation could take up a quarter of the world's carbon budget, or the amount of CO2 emissions permitted to keep global temperature rise to within 1.5 degrees Celsius. The the key to the leisure activities, right, the whole thing that most people are looking for is a certain escape. Rob Fletcher is an anthropologist that studies sustainable development at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. And so people want to feel that their leisure activities um, aren't harming other people and will be beneficial, but they don't want to necessarily spend a lot of time investigating whether those claims are actually true, right? Um, Because that diminishes from the experience itself. If climate change has taught us anything, it's that carbon emissions can't be contained. 
and steering impact away from the park and into the surrounding areas is still impact. Yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, the long and the short of it is that that model of travel, that model of experience is just not really compatible uh, with a sustainable world. What Rob seems to be saying is that the only eco-friendly tourism is local tourism. Which would make sense, except whether it's eco-development or eco-tourism in the Great Himalayan National Park, both rely on the same thing. Locals getting kicked out of the park and tourists traveling into the valley. What I would say will sound very weird from someone who is the founder of an ecotourism company, but tourism spoil. It spoils. Again, here's Stefan Marshall, the founder of the Himalayan Ecotourism Cooperative. It will destroy the beauty. It will generate pollution. And your initial purpose, if it was conservation, will be completely missed, I think. In his view, tourism, by definition, works by putting people into a hyper-competitive relationship with each other. And in turn, this degrades their communities and their environment. If you are not ready, if you have not planned it from the beginning, it will go like... It will, it will be uncontrolled. If you want to benef- uh, share uh, a huge money among the community, money made by tourism, you need to bring a lot of people. A lot. And this is, this is not the kind of place you can bring a lot of people. Otherwise, if you do, you spoil it and it's finished. Story is finished. Like I said earlier, me and my friend Viba stayed with Stefan and his family for a couple days when I was reporting on the Tirtan Valley. It's one of the ironies here. You can't really report on the place without also patronizing the very people you're there to report on. It was a beautiful couple days. Bird watching, pakora eating, playing with his kids. When we left, the road down the mountain was still iced over from a huge snowstorm. I was nervous with the motorcycle and a couple local guys generously offered to take the bike down the mountain for us. Viba and I walked behind them, throwing snowballs and slipping on our butts. At one point, we passed some men, bundled up and huddled on the side of the road. We started chit-chatting. Well, mostly Viba did. And in less than a minute, one man asked if we were looking to buy land. He'd sized us up. Obvious outsiders. A white guy, a non-local brown girl. They'd seen that combo before. Viba quickly assured him we weren't on the hunt for real estate. But I still wonder why he asked. Whether he was looking to sell or to tell us to take our money elsewhere. This episode of Outside In was reported by Yardane Amron and produced by Yardane with Taylor Quimby. This piece was edited by Taylor Quimby and myself, Justine Paradise, with help from Felix Poon and Jessica Hunt. Our interim executive producer is Rebecca Lavoie. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder, and additional music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. 
If you want to stay in the outside in loop beyond the podcast feed, perhaps read what we're reading. I promise our mix is the perfect combination of important news and total distraction. You can sign up for our newsletter. It comes out every two weeks. The link to sign up is at our website, which is outsideinradio.org. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Thanks for listening.